Welcome to the Things Learned Podcast. My name is Steve, and these are some notable things that I learned during the third and fourth weeks of 2012. This episode will discuss the sun in Minecraft, SoundCloud, web design for tablets regarding images, the signature scanning feature in macOS Lion, Dungeons and Dragons, ITSM process modeling, MacBook keyboard covers, and the difference between NSPs and ISPs. Let's get into it. January 15th. Minecraft's sun rose and set in the wrong places until 1.9. Old Minecraft was a fun time. Before the game was officially released, a lot of gameplay elements were experimented on, and there would often be tons of dubious blog posts and tweets from the development team on what might be coming down the pipeline. One subtle yet still significant change that came in one of the final beta releases was that the sun's actual position was changed to rise and set from the east and west, instead of from the north and south, respectively. It was apparently a bug that took a while to get around to fixing. I remember when this change was made, and it kind of disoriented me in my existing world files, as I was used to the sun's incorrect coordinates by this point. I'm sure there's a more technical determination as to where the game determines north, south, east, and west to be, but I remember my original reaction being, it's a game, the directions can be anywhere you want, what do you mean they were wrong? I guess there was some logic in the background though, and they fixed it come beta 1.9. January 16th, SoundCloud. Now here's a topic I don't remember much about. SoundCloud, that site where people can upload audio. What else can one say about it? Founded in 2007, it continues to flourish today, akin to Bandcamp or the old MySpace music. Speaking of MySpace music, that's important because of SoundCloud's founding date of 2007, right in the thick of the MySpace heyday. Of course, we all know what ended up happening with MySpace, and what's even more tragic is that from a historical standpoint, the majority of content from MySpace is now gone due to a botched server migration that went sideways in 2016. While some stuff can be found in various archives, it's in no way complete and can be quite difficult to search. SoundCloud is still around today, however, and never encountered such a nasty fate. On SoundCloud, artists can upload their audio to the site and utilize all of the features it has, including waveform-based comments and a robust social networking platform. Yeah, I'm sounding pretty generic about the whole thing, but that's legitimately what the site is about. Some big-name artists actually started out on SoundCloud, so it definitely can be a pipeline to success. I experimented with this site a few years back, trying to figure out if it was a good free host for podcasting, but it seems they only allow three free hours of upload space before they start charging. Oddly enough, I don't really remember doing much with SoundCloud from 2012. I did discuss it with a musically-inclined friend at the end of this year, but that was entirely in a different context, and I have no records or emails indicating what I was doing with it on this day. So the mystery remains. 
January 18th, some correct proportions for tablet-compatible clickable images. Fingers are surprisingly large when it comes to poking websites. Yeah, I was still attempting to refine my ability to refactor my HTML skills for the iPad era, and being the web designer for several student org offices, I had to stay in the know. So a period-appropriate iPad has a screen resolution of 1024 by 768, and the tip of a finger can often take up quite a bit of pixel area. When designing a menu or something that relies on images for the buttons, one must make sure those buttons are correctly sized. Before touchscreens became a big thing, websites would be designed for use with a mouse and keyboard almost exclusively. When we suddenly had to think about phones and tablets, CSS spacing blew up overnight, figuratively and literally. January 19th relearned Lion's signature feature in preview. Speaking of touchscreens, let's revisit an OS and hardware that could use one. So rather than simply release a Mac with touch, Apple decided a better way to sign a document was to have you scribble your name somewhere on actual paper and then use the webcam to take a picture of it. Super practical, right? I guess it's an okay feature for the sake of functionality, but to me it just seems like a ridiculous and oddly complicated workaround. You'd think that they would perhaps leverage the iPad to do it, but this was before Apple thought it was practical to support a formal stylus. The situation has improved a bit since 2012 at least. In modern day, it's of course now possible to invoke an iPhone or iPad to perform the signature, but it still requires a separate device and another purchase. Come on Apple. Do the right thing here and put touchscreens on your Macs. January 21st, how to play D&D. Oh man, here we go. I don't intend to turn this podcast into a D&D show, as I'm not even remotely qualified to get into that level of detail. This semester, our friends group got into Dungeons & Dragons. My roommate's boyfriend was our fearless leader, designing the campaign and teaching us how to design characters and prepare for the weekly events. He even gave us homework, having us design our characters based on the official templates for D&D 3.5e. Also distributed to our group was a gigabyte's worth of D&D manuals, so we could read up on what was to come. Of course, this was also meant to be a fun social activity, and we didn't take it all that seriously. At a high level, you get together and mostly partake in what I can only describe as a choose-your-own-adventure narrative that also involves rolling 20-sided dice now and then to introduce random chance, which may dictate the story or influence what happens to the characters. To be truly immersed in the game, you are also encouraged to make decisions based on your character's defined traits, as opposed to simply being yourself. You can probably see the origins of a lot of video games, movies, and other media based on these rules alone. D&D goes back a couple of decades, originally published in 1974, with the version we were utilizing, 3.5, releasing in 2003. They are now up to the 5th edition, which was released in 2014. I remember hearing about how 4.0 was overcomplicated and made things less fun, so our DM intentionally stuck to 3.5 to keep us engaged. I remember this time as a fun yet somewhat bittersweet bookend to college life, 
as our group wouldn't really ever quite gather together again on such a regular basis after this spring. Life goes on, and people grow and change. The memories are what matter though, and learning D&D with this group was a really fun time. January 23rd, ITSM Process Modeling. It was about time to get back into the swing of things, not only for the new semester, but for work as well. Today I was in the semesterly training seminar for the university's IT help desk. This time around, we were being oriented to the concept of information technology service management, which is a standard across most larger organizations when it comes to customer-focused IT needs. Since we were all boots-on-the-ground help desk members, we qualified for learning all of this. I think our school was trying to reorganize their IT org structure to unify around the ITSM and ITIL frameworks, the latter standing for Information Technology Infrastructure Library, which encompasses ITSM. I remember poo-pooing these concepts back in the day, thinking it was overly bureaucratic and complicated as someone who just wanted to get the customer fixed and on their way. To me, I felt like for every little event at the help desk, I suddenly now had to fill out a huge ticket form, compartmentalize and categorize the actions and tasks, and then start working on it, but only if it was in my lane. I remember we were kind of frustrated by this, and it showed when we went to also apply this in a real-world setting, with people at the desk wondering why we had suddenly gotten so much slower at our jobs. In modern times, I understand these concepts a lot more, and I'm even partially certified in ITIL as of a few years ago. But I think what the university was trying to do in 2012 didn't scale down to the level that of which we were operating at. Perhaps it would have worked better if the volume was higher, but for the amount of people we normally dealt with, combined with our general efficiency of resolving issues without a rigid structure, it didn't work well for our needs in that moment. January 25th, no more MacBook keyboard cover. Did more damage than good, I think. Sometimes protective covers might not be worth the trouble. I had a little silicone keyboard cover for my 11-inch MacBook Air that I bought in early 2011, which was great for keeping dirt and crumbs away from the actual keys, as well as adding a nice blue color. It worked great, except for the unfortunate circumstance where the keyboard cover would press against the screen when the laptop was closed. I was worried that this was potentially causing long-term damage to the screen. Secondarily, I had this clear hard shell case for my MacBook Air from a vendor called M-Cover, and after a few years, I had about had it with this thing as well. So the thing about hard shell cases for laptops is that if dust or dirt gets caught in between the case and the computer's shell, it has potential to get wedged and scrape against the computer, causing the very damage one was seeking to prevent. This becomes more apparent when the case has slits for airflow and the like. I'm sure this could be prevented if one takes the case off and wipes both it and the laptop down, but at that point, it sort of defeats the purpose in the first place. Various discussions I found across the internet seem to have mixed feelings overall on whether a case is needed. Some like it, while others do not. I noticed the bottom of the laptop was still getting scraped up despite having the case on, 
so I just ditched it, and honestly, I think that was the right move. So yeah, while the idea of covers and cases might seem cool at first, one might want to reconsider using them when factoring in all the little things. And finally, January 27th, the difference between an NSP and an ISP. Time for a new class in a new semester. On the docket today was IT725, a network technologies class. This class was difficult, but in a fun way, and we covered a lot of ground in terms of networking stuff, as well as a bit of Python programming along the way. So on day one, we learned the difference between a network service provider versus an internet service provider. My notes from this day simply state that NSPs talk to each other via means called peering points. They have service level agreements between them to keep things in check. Peering points can then link to ISPs, aka internet service providers, for residential customers and the like. ISPs are the link between the internet and a home customer, so think Comcast or some equivalent. Did I ever need to know what an NSP was? Well, to give you perspective, I didn't even remember that was a thing until I revisited my notes to talk about it right here, so take that as you will. January of 2012 is nearly finished. Things were starting to get busy again as we were just coming out of the winter college break period. It's funny how long the stretch of time tended to be back then, and when you really think about it, it's kind of strange in context. At least where I'm from, elementary, middle, and high school only gave you a break that lasts a week between December and January. But colleges? You get a whole month. I skipped over or downgraded a few things learned. Those include a tidbit about a very specific website at the university regarding student orgs that I A. don't remember much about, and B. I don't think it would have been very interesting to discuss anyway. I also omitted a quote-unquote thing learned, which in retrospect felt more like a frustration, stating that the housing department doesn't inform you when you get new roommates. I think around this time we finally got a somewhat last-minute notice about getting two new roommates to fill the empty slot in our apartment, and we were somewhat peeved about it. Following that, I had a day where I noted I learned random things about European religious history, which was again part of a class I took as an elective this semester about, you guessed it, European religious history. While I certainly could have spoken about it at length and have plenty of notes on it, I'm not sure how coherent I could have been with it. It was one of those classes that sounded really, really interesting on paper, but in practice it ended up being one of the most difficult courses I'd take in college due to it being designed for high-level history majors. I don't know exactly how they let me enroll in it, all things considered, but it was what it was. I skipped over yet another random and very specific League of Legends fun fact regarding the champion Rise. And lastly, I skipped a day in which I was discussing how people can apparently get stabbed way too much around the campus. The latter one was really strange. This semester saw a lot of violent assaults and stabbings, one of which involved one of our new roommates of all people. So it was really less of a thing learned and more of an overall commentary on what was happening. And I guess I either couldn't think of anything better to write down on that day, or it was really that jarring of a series of events, which I believe it was. Looking at other things going on, specifically my inbox, 
there was one other fun item that is worth reminiscing about. On January 18th, I got a welcome email regarding OnLive Desktop, a cloud service that aimed to provide a remote Windows 7 desktop environment, particularly for iPads. The early days of the iPad were quite lacking when it came to actual productivity, to say the very least. Plenty of companies wanted to figure out ways to fill the gap, and OnLive thought it was a good idea to spin up a service in which you could just remote into a full computer somewhere else and access a full Microsoft Office suite, among other typical full desktop applications. OnLive was also known for being one of the first services to attempt full remote game streaming, akin to Google Stadia or Xbox Cloud Gaming, but a full decade in advance. The service ultimately faltered due to latency and bandwidth issues. Basically, the internet of the 2010s wasn't quite up to the task just yet. The idea of streaming a desktop was a bit more feasible, however, as there are far fewer refreshes and timing-oriented concerns. Unfortunately, OnLive Desktop ran into some legal issues, as Microsoft claimed they were violating Windows 7 licensing agreements in providing free desktop environments to users. Apparently, they would change the operating system on their end to leverage Windows Server 2008 R2 instead to resolve the licensing and compliance issues. OnLive no longer exists, progressively falling apart during the 2010s, and apparently selling most of its core assets to Sony in 2015. It's possible OnLive is still around under the hood for different cloud streaming products, but it's worth noting that it existed in the early days of the iPad and attempts to solve the issue of iOS not being especially great for real work. That about wraps up this episode. It's a bit of a shorter one than usual. My apologies for that one. Thanks for checking out the podcast. And if you enjoyed it, I encourage you to subscribe or follow the show for other episodes. If you wouldn't mind giving the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that rates podcasts, I'd appreciate it as always. The show notes include links to various supporting material for each thing learned, as well as music credits. So have a look at that if you are interested. Have a great whatever it is, and I'll talk to you next time.